You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back to the show, everyone. It's Kirk, Victoria. It's our last episode of our third year. That's right. I know, this is amazing. Now, if you're looking at the calendar going, it's not... December. What are they talking about? Our podcast started in March. Yes. Mm-hmm. So our podcast year goes until March. So this is, yeah, the last episode of the third year of the yeah. show. It's been an amazing ride. Yeah. It and sure has. Next week, we have uh, our lovely guest. Oh, my. I am it's, so oh, excited. It's, yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, the, it's going to be so fun. For those of you who don't <laughs> yeah. know, uh, when we kick off a new season, we have on another naturalist that we know, uh, Brett Sieberer comes on, and some of you know him from being on the show. He does a hostile show. takeover. He does an amazing job asking us. It's sort of a hostile takeover. Not that we let him do it, but it's hostile and that some of the questions get pretty uh, challenging. And he asks us all kinds of questions about kind of quizzing us about stuff that was on the show, quizzing our naturalist mm-hmm. knowledge, and of course, playing everyone's favorite game, Eat, Eat Ride, Ride Jacket. jacket. Horrible. Which, if you don't know what it is, you're going to have to come next week to find out. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so fun. And uh, maybe Tragic. a little controversial. Okay. <laughs> but we're not there yet. No, we aren't. We're not there yet. We have yet. a jam-packed we episode, we got one I'm more sure. show. Okay. What do you have, Rachel, for our, our final show of the year here? Well, it's come to my attention somewhat recently, uh, and this happens to us. Uh, as naturalists, as well as being podcasters of the strange and the weird, that not everybody knows what about my topic. And I thought everyone knew about my topic. It's one of those. Oh, okay. Which okay. happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So little background is I was helping out a fellow naturalist at my workplace somewhat recently in the last week or so. And getting them, helping them get ready to teach planetarium. I was mainly going in to make sure that the planetarium like blew up properly because it's an inflatable planetarium and making sure like the electronic like display that we have on the inside was working correctly. And they had never Mm -hmm. taught that class in particular before. So I was touching base with them and just, Hey, you have all the facts that you need. Do you have any stories or questions or anything like that? Yeah. And I was just laying on the floor as they were working and getting ready uh, for their class. And I was looking up at the stars because the display was going so we could see all the different stars. And I was just looking at it and I proceeded to share some different knowledge about space that I've learned through this podcast, through just hanging out with Kirk, things that I just randomly know. It's it's infectious. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so I shared some stuff that they didn't know about, which is because they don't know a lot about space. And because okay. we tend to focus really on Earth and the interactions and the space that we inhabit. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So we talked a bit about how comets smell like cat urine, which we've you've talked yep. about. Lovely. Cat well, so, careful, it's it's not just cat urine, no. cat urine and vomit. Exactly. Yes. No, cat urine and, and farts. Cat urine and farts is what it was. It was urine and farts together mm-hmm. is what comets smell like. Gross. And that awful. And I talked with them about the brightest stars that we can see from uh, the yeah. planet Earth as well as how the light from stars is really us looking into the astrologic past because the light is from the past because it takes so long. It takes years, hence the term light years, to get to us. Yeah. Which they're like, whoa, that's wild. Um, (laughs) And then we also started talking a little bit about black holes. So y'all remember the big news a few years back how there was like that first ever picture of a black hole, right? It wasn't yeah, like yeah. a uh, uh, picture. Sagittarius A star. Yeah, it it wasn't like a, a like like a, a light image in the way that we think of images. Yeah, yeah. Right. truly, but it was still like the first picture of a black hole, which is really cool. And actually, on it was that ra- note, it was radio waves that have been converted into light. Yes, exactly, and. Actually, the in 2020, I don't know if y'all knew this, the Nobel Prize actually went to the discovery of the fact that there is a supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way. Like the astronomers oh, yes. able yeah. were able to prove that there is one in the center of the Milky Way. We didn't know that before 2020. Well, they, they since so cool. now have have imaged that. There's an image of that out there. Exactly. So cool. So I'm kind of talking about black holes today. We're, okay. But a right. specific thing. But I want to give a little bit of background of what black holes are for those who maybe don't know what a black hole is. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So black holes, uh, for those who don't, is one of the ways stars die. Sure. In yes. the simplest of terms, right? Yeah. Um, in That's essence... Good. Like stars, true. Generally, they'll either explode or they'll implode. If they explode, yeah. uh, they go sure, supernova, yeah. and sometimes the explosion is so big that it can condense then into a really, really tight part of space time. Well, what happens is when you have a a supernova, it actually the 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 star is expanding out and getting bigger and bigger, like turning into like a red giant and mm-hmm. swelling as it's running out of fuel. And then it collapses very quickly and it will actually kind of rebound and bounce off this like hard core. Mm-hmm. Like as, it, as it's kind of coming in super fast and collapsing, it will kind of literally kind of boing and like shoot back out. And that's what the supernova is, is mm-hmm. that rapid collapse and then explosion. Whereas if there's enough mass, when it gets to that critical point, instead of bouncing back out, it just keeps on collapsing. Right. And doesn't ever spring back out. Exactly. So I like well, the way you said it. Some stars will sort of explode out. Mm-hmm. Some can no longer support the pressure to, to keep the, the size they are, and they will collapse in on themselves. And those are the ones that yeah. we tend to think of as turning into black holes. Yeah, Exactly. Because they just condense into a little tiny spot. And so it's all the mass of this huge star in one little spot. And it's a part of space that it's just so dense with so much matter that it just starts pulling everything into it. 
Uh, it has its From own its gravity that gravity. is so dense and so strong that you just can't escape after you reach a certain point or cl- however close you are to that space. Mm-hmm. And that's called the event horizon. Um, right. The gravity. One of the really weird things about them, though, like yeah. you said, they pull things in, including not light. any more than the, but not any more than the original star would have, right? In a weird way, because they don't they don't gain any mass. Mm-hmm. So like, the black hole itself can doesn't have more mass than the star they started out as. Mm-hmm. So like, if our sun was replaced by a black hole of the same mass as the sun, our orbit would stay the same. Exactly, we would not be magically like sucked into it. It's just. It's just a bunch of mass. It's just that it's in a smaller, um, tighter package. Exactly. Right. And the gravity is just yeah. so strong that nothing can escape it, including light. So it just pulls. When you get cl- when you get close to it, yeah, right? When yeah. you get too close, when you cross that event horizon, mm-hmm. even light exactly. can't escape. But yeah, you were correct. Like if our star, if our sun turned into a black hole, we would still orbit it. We would just be very, very cold. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, it'd be real dark and real cold. It wouldn't be a good situation. It would be bad. We would we would notice. What is it like? Twelve minutes? Uh, eight minutes. Eight if minutes. Our sun disappeared. We, it takes eight minutes for the sunlight to get here. Yeah. All right. Cool. Literally. You got eight minutes. Go. <laughs> so, yeah. So once you cross that event horizon, I like this is all background information. I'm not actually talking about black okay. holes. Uh, in essence, black holes are wild in the first place because, like, you get supermassive black holes, which are a bunch of black holes that have combined together somehow, and it gets really complicated mm-hmm. really quickly. And we're still learning so much about black holes. But I wanted to oh, talk yeah. about what happens when an object does cross that event horizon. This is oh, okay, cool, really, okay. Like, this is theoretical because we can't technically this test it. This is what it. the math tells us happens. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We, we can't no, test yeah. Nobody's this. done this experimentally. Yeah. Because like I said, light doesn't escape from a black hole. But what does happen is fascinating. So when an object gets like too close, like past that event horizon line, uh, it starts to experience like tidal forces. So like what happens is the gravitational pull starts distorting the object and pulling it towards like the center. And because of Mm -hmm. that, it starts to elongate it. So one side will Uh create or have experience or experience like really strong gravity and start pulling it, but not technically ever pulling it apart. Okay, eventually becomes like this line of atoms. Like you just become thinner and thinner right. and thinner. And what this it's is called of the, the gravity is differential is so like say you're going exactly. feet first would be so different between right. your so, feet and your head that you just get start to get stretched out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And truly they thought about this name so well and I love it very much. Because it's called spaghettification or the noodle (laughs) effect. I had not heard that before. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's it's one of those times. It's called spaghettification. Someone someone got the name of this one right. Mm -hmm. They they thought about it because what happens is like you cross over and you just get stretched and stretched until you become like a a string of spaghetti. Um, And it just looks like it's squeezed 
and you just become like this little funnel. Instead of like truly like tearing you apart, eventually you just become this string of atoms that is stretched from the event horizon towards the center of this black hole. And it just flattens you out like a pancake. It's so fun. <laughs> Horrifying, but cool. Smeared across space. Uh, yes. But that is what I wanted to talk about. I mainly, like, there's not a lot about spaghettification because, again, it's theoretical. Uh, Stephen Hawking was the person who came up with it in the first place. Or, like, he described it in A Brief History of Time. Uh, the idea of... Book spaghettification which is really fascinating um what would happen like mathematically because again it is not ethical or possible to send someone into a black hole and then receive messages from the black hole to find out what is happening to the object or the person in that black hole yeah information not even no form of information of any yeah. kind can cross the event horizon and then come back we i think us. when i was a kid i thought like once you cross the event horizon that was like so like you're like that's when all the excitement started mm -hmm. but really for the observe for the person who was doing it you would have no way to know that you would cross the event horizon no you would not feel any different like it's just a arbitrary point in space where it would take more energy to turn around than exists. Exactly. Right. You would just like the real bad stuff wouldn't happen until you got a lot closer than the event horizon. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't notice until it just. Until it's too late. Probably be pretty quick though. You know, I hope so. Well, I mean, it, it, it depends actually. I think whether you are heading like straight for it or whether you're coming in at an angle, because yeah. there definitely are, these accretion disks of gases that are swirling around black holes. Mm -hmm. That's actually what we're seeing with those images. Exactly. Is these disks of, of, of gases that are being accelerated to incredible, like near the, um, you know, the speed of light, these particles are being accelerated because it's, um, well, some of them, you know, if they're assuming they're not light already, mm -hmm. um, like some of these gases and whatnot, they are being accelerated incredibly fast and they're just orbiting around the black hole and they may never cross that event horizon. You exactly. Know? They may just keep on swirling around. So to kind of, it would kind of depend if you were going straight at it or coming from an angle, coming from an angle, you might be in for one heck of a ride. <laughs> yeah. And like in all technicality speaking to like the tidal forces of a black hole, depend even depending on whatever size of black hole, like the tidal forces will kill a human before you even reach the event horizon, just because of how fast you would be orbiting and everything. Like it would just, Oh, interesting. Yeah. It would be okay. too much for an astronaut, for a human body to be able to experience. Right. Uh, so like we would be dead before gotcha. that. So we couldn't even figure out. We, we wouldn't be able to send back any information anyway, even if we were able to distribute information from one side of a black hole to another. But I just, I love the term spaghettification and the fact that you eventually just become this thin line of uh, atoms circling of atoms. and yeah. going yeah. into this black hole. Fascinating and absolutely wild. So that's what I had for us this week was spaghettification. It is fascinating oh. and it makes me content to keep very far away from black holes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere near. <laughs> I'm good. I, I'll be the I'll be the contrarian then and say I would love to go near a black hole. Beautiful. Uh, just close enough to get like a good view of 
what's going on. It's got to mm-hmm. be one of the most amazing spectacles in the entire universe. I mean, that's yeah. fair. True. Uh, so that being said, that's all I have for you this week. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. All right. In a world where the tiniest elements make the biggest impact, where curiosity leads to groundbreaking discoveries, it's time to dwell deeper than ever before. Welcome to Under the Microscope, the podcast that zooms into the captivating world of materials and nanoscience. With each episode, you meet a scientist working in the field of materials or nanoscience. On Under the Microscope, the scientist candidly talks about their career journey, their favorite research experiment, and their three wishes to improve the world. Check out Under the Microscope on your favorite podcast app. Hey, everybody, we're back. Today, friends, I want to talk about earwax. Are you? Jeez. Oh, okay. Let's uh, do it. I, yeah. It's, I uh, already medically... hate looking for the, the images for this for our <laughs> social media. Awesome. Oh, You're welcome. God. No, no, it, it gets better. Uh, there's something at the end that you'll be able to latch on to, I think. Oh, um, no. <laughs> yes. Just uh, medically, earwax is known as cerumen. Mm-hmm. Just so you know. Um, so if you're looking for scientific type articles about earwax, that's that's your term. Good to know. Want. But, uh, you know, I think it's pretty easy to get fairly far into your adulthood and not know much about earwax because hardly anybody that's talks fair. about it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, at least in American culture, there's kind of a general disgust about most stuff that comes out of your body. But I would say there is a scale, which informally I would characterize as going from sort of poop and vomit on the most disgusting end to, you know, then then maybe like mucus, urine, earwax, saliva, and tears. Tears and breast milk kind of being on the least disgusting end. Would you generally agree with my characterization? Yeah. I think pus so is like worse earwax. Than vomit and poop, personally, but <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah, I don't like the oh, idea of pus. Ugh. Okay, it's not good. It's no. not great. It doesn't bode yeah. well when pus is created. When it's chunky, that doesn't bode <sighs> well. Something is wrong. Yeah, pus is pretty bad. It's true. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know. With your own earwax, I would say for most people, it's probably not that gross. Other people's kind of sure. gross. Yeah, you don't want to um, see that. But yeah. not, not as bad as some other things. And, you know, I did not know this until I was at least in my 20s. But uh, there are two main types of human earwax. I don't know if you knew this. There's oh, okay. wet and dry. Yeah. Ooh, I just learned about this because I just got my 23andMe, not a sponsor. And they're like, you're more predisposed <laughs> to have wet earwax. I'm like, that's correct. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Right. Well, we as go. you allude to, um, it is genetic. It's controlled by a single gene mutation. The, huh. the gene for dry earwax is recessive. Huh. And... 
This varies by human population, which is predominant. So in East Asia, the dry earwax is more common, significantly more common. Okay. And in Europe, and especially in Africa, the wet earwax gene is much more common. All right. Okay. And uh, I think also also North America has dry earwax genes, I think, because the population there is... I mean, we're talking about Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right, yeah. I um, followed you. Yeah. Good clarification. So I actually, in spite of being of exclusively European heritage, as far as I'm aware, I have the dry kind. So therefore, both my parents also did or do. Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so just to, to give a little description, dry earwax is usually tan or gray, maybe light yellow, flaky, kind of brittle. Wet earwax oh. is light to dark brown or maybe even orangish and quite sticky. So, yeah. you know, listeners, you probably know which kind you have. Uh, a lot, there's not a ton of accessible research on earwax out there, but a lot of it that has come out is from Japan. There's an opportunity here for some, uh, yeah. some research, yeah. Okay, but researchers in Japan have done some stuff that they found an association between having wet type earwax and stronger body odor from your armpits. Um, and and also possibly my armpits more. Rachel is kind of stinky. So that's fair. (laughs) I guess. And there's also possibly an association with increased risk of breast cancer, but also better colostrum production colostrum is like the very first milk that comes in after a baby's born um okay so hold on so having the wet yes your wax is associated with a higher risk okay yeah and the colostrum and the smelliness so Hmm. why would that be well it actually does make some sense because we actually have two different two main different types of sweat glands in the body Okay. Eccrine cool. sweat glands are the kind that basically just put out salty water. Right. But then um, apocrine sweat glands put out uh, the kind of oily stuff that comes out on our body. Sure, so it's, yeah. it's fats and proteins. And that is the stuff that the bacteria eat that makes us smell. And sure, sure. So those sweat glands are a, an adapted kind of those sweat glands are what produce earwax. And also an adapted kind of that sweat gland is what produces breast milk. So they're exactly. all related. Yeah. And okay. you know, it's actually pretty well known that um, people of East Asian origin tend to have uh, less body odor. Uh, and, you know, on average than people of European or African origin. So it seems okay. that the earwax gene may be partly responsible, although there are other sure. things if like... Pr- if you're not producing as much of that oil, yeah. then the bacteria doesn't have anything to eat, and it's not mm-hmm. gonna, the bacteria what causes the smell, like you said, so that'll make sense. It does. Yeah, and e- there are other things like diet and microbiome of your skin that are going to affect sure, that, sure. but, you know, the, the, the gene does seem to have something to do with it. Um, why do we have earwax, though? Uh, yeah, not, I'm curious. As I said, yeah, there's not, like, no. a ton of stuff out there, but... Generally, scientists believe it has two purposes. One is to clean and protect the ears from dust and other foreign material and to get rid of dense, that, yeah. dense, dead skin cells from your 
um, ear canal. Right. So as you move your jaw by eating and talking, the earwax slowly will work its way out of your ears, sort of like a conveyor belt. Uh-huh. And yeah. earwax also, uh, it's been confirmed fairly recently, does have some antimicrobial properties. Hmm. So it's kind oh. of a defense system. Yeah. Um, there are, there are bacteri- bacteria in earwax, but they're commensals. They're harmless skin microbiomes that, you know, they're just there like on your skin. Um, but it does have some factors that work against pathogenic bacteria that can be harmful. And it seems like it is probably produced by all mammals, although this information is very hard to determine on the internet, at least. Yeah, are we swabbing everybody's ears? I mean, we if you have start, a, I guess. If you have a dog or a cat, you know that they have earwax. Yep. But Absolutely, yeah. There is um there's one animal for which earwax has become a major tool for research. Ooh. Yeah. Whales. What? Mm. Whales. This I feel like I've heard this before, yeah. Yeah, whales develop earwax plugs over their entire lifetimes. It just stays in there. And it become they can become quite large. Um, there oh. was a blue whale that was struck and killed by a ship that had a ten inch or twenty five centimeter plug of wow. earwax. You can make a, a candle. Lot of earwax. <laughs> you, you, you certainly you could. could. Gross. Earwax candle. Shrek. When yeah, right. these are studied after the whale dies, they can be used to find out information about the whale. For example, they can okay. be used similar to tree rings to determine the whale's yeah, age. Yeah. They have oh, wow. a seasonal diet that affects the color of the wax deposited. Horrifying. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And they also collect evidence of things that are going on in the whale's body at different times. For example, the stress hormone cortisol shows up in earwax, so it can tell us how stressed wow. the whale was at different points in its life. Huh. Okay. Unfortunately, it also can tell us how much the whale was exposed to certain pollutants, pesticides, mercury, yeah. flame retardants. And, sense. you know, they found looking at historical samples of, of these plugs that cortisol levels from the, the height of the age of whaling are higher than from when whaling had stopped. And then wow, that makes sense. higher cortisol levels again recently, um, which can be correlated with ocean temperature rising. Sure. And of course, there are other factors that can be stressful to whales in modern times, such as all the underwater noise from our shipping and stuff. Right. But I just thought it was so fascinating that earwax can be this amazing tool for insight into the lives of whales and the state of our oceans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wild. That is very cool. I mean, you think of earwax as just this sort of like, yeah, it's earwax, it's nothing, but turns out it's not so nothing. Yeah. I still very much am like, don't love it. Like like I mentioned, I have the wet earwax. Man, our listeners are getting to know me a little, little, little too well. <laughs> a little bit too well? <sighs> anyway, uh, yeah, I just, it grosses me out after a little, if I think about it too much, I'm like, Ugh. Yeah. But, uh, I guess it does something. We well, don't think about it too hard. Yeah. My sources this week included the UK Natural History Museum, The Atlantic, the website of Professor John H. MacDonald of the University of Delaware, and Wikipedia. Excellent. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, it will be Kirk. 
It is winter here in the Northland, but I have been dreaming of summer. And uh, summer has a lot of really good things that I enjoy, uh, but I do have to admit, I haven't had any ticks, mosquito bites, wasp stings, or anything of the sort for many months. And I've been much less itchy in general, being <laughs> that, that it's nice. winter, not summer. There's one particular plant that I always teach my summer campers to watch out for, and it's not poison ivy because we just don't see it that commonly. Mm-hmm. It's stinging nettle. Oh, yeah. And they usually think I'm saying stinging nettle. Mm. Uh, so I have to clearly say that it's N nettle, N E T T L E. Yep. Uh, and there's a bunch of nettles around the world. So lots of our listeners are probably familiar with them. The main one we have here where, where we live is stinging nettle. I like to show it to kids and then I'll like, explain all about it and then I'll grab a leaf and they're like oh and then I'll eat the leaf and they're like oh my gosh but it drives home the message the important message that it's not the leaves that sting you they're actually edible uh it's the stems the little uh parts that irritate you is on the stem right now that is not true about the plant I am talking about today and I can't believe it's taken me this long we keep having three years into the show to get to this plant um, ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners, let's talk about the Gimpy Gimpy. Gimpy Gimpy? Have what on earth is that? either of you heard of this plant? No. No. Awesome. What? What? So the Gimpy this? Gimpy hails from uh, Australia. Of course. As where it's mostly known for, right? Uh, so also Indonesia, Malaysia, some other places. Uh, like I said, 8% of our listeners are from Australia. So shout out to our Australian listeners. Um, some of them, or most, a lot of them, if they're into, interested in this kind of thing, probably already have an idea of what I'm about to discuss. But I will say, if you're one of our Australian listeners and you've had a run-in with the Gimpy Gimpy, please write us at contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com and let us know what it was like. Because uh, you're about to find out a bit here on the show. Uh, now, probably luckily, it is not found everywhere in Australia. Uh, these Excellent. days, it's restricted to coastal rainforests, mostly in Queensland. Uh, so a lot of people won't have the opportunity to ha- come into contact with this in their daily life. Uh, it does like to grow alongside roads and disturbed areas, though. So unfortunately, humans do sometimes come into contact with this plant. To be clear, though, mm. you definitely do not want to come into contact with this plant. The Gimpy Gimpy is, without a doubt, the most painful stinging plant on earth. It has an incredible defense mechanism that will be familiar to anyone who has encountered nettles as the Gimpy Gimpy is the most potent nettle on earth. So we'll get to that in a second, but I'll just tell you a little background stuff first. This is a plant that usually grows about three meters in height, but it can reach up to 10 meters in height. So they can get quite tall. Oh, much no. higher than the little rinky-dink uh, stuff we get here where we live. How many Rachels yeah, is that? 10 meters. Uh, a bunch. That's, That's so many. So, I mean, it's like uh, it's like f- over five Rachels, between five and six Rachels. Oh, my God. So it's real big. The scientific name, I'll try to get this right, it's uh, Dendrocinide moroides, uh, with moroides meaning mulberry-like. And I guess someone, okay, I won't say uh, someone. I, let's name names. I know who it was. It was Weddell of the Weddell <laughs> Sea fame. Oh, wow. Uh, he classified the plant, and I guess he thought the leaves looked kind of like mulberry leaves. Okay. Hard disagree on that. 
I'm not sure what he was thinking. Uh, they Maybe are large, kind of heart-shaped to me. They look a lot like basswood or linden leaves, if you know what those trees oh. happen to look like. Yeah. Uh, but those are delightful. These are not. So uh, I'm going to assume that many of our listeners have gotten into nettles at some point in their life. If you're an outdoors person, you get these little bumps on your skin and they itch. And for, like for the recent ones around here, yeah, I would describe it as more annoying yeah. than painful, right? It's maybe like a bunch of mosquito bites, but the sensation paid, fades pretty quick. Like you said, maybe it's 20 minutes. It's more prickly than um, itchy, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it can itch. I mean, I, I think it itches. A lot of kids say it itches, I, I, but it doesn't stings. itch as long as a mosquito's, mosquito yeah. bite. Yeah. And I've had kids get into them in summer camp, and often if it was like in the morning, that sensation is totally gone by the afternoon. Oh, yeah. They're forgetting about it. A, a quick splash of cold water. Uh, and if you it kind of helps kind of wash it away, if you ignore it, I mean, do something else fun. People tend to forget that it even happened. Right. The same can absolutely right. not be said of the Gimpy Gimpy. Oh. First of all, first off, um, unlike many other uh, nettles that I'm more familiar with, the, these stingers are on the leaves. Uh, so even just Awful. a gentle brush with the plant can get you into trouble. Terrible. The leaves are covered in tiny hairs called trichomes and these are what are found on on all the nettles Uh, these are essentially mini hypodermic needles that actually break off in your skin and then they have a little hollow tip and they immediately start to inject an irritant into you yeah the pain experienced is said to be like nothing else on earth oh good uh the effect is immediate and is both both Get this, both an intense burning, but also oh. an intense stinging at the same time. Oh. And and no, unlike you. the nettles oh, I'm familiar I with, that. I mentioned like having kid put some like cold water on their leg or something they got on there. Adding water uh-huh. to the stings of the gimpy gimpy makes it worse. Oh. Having water makes it poured onto the affected Why? area <laughs> is said to feel like someone pouring fire onto your skin. Awful. Uh, so, not surprisingly, having water on it Absolutely is not. unbearable. Even rain, it will like hurt. Uh, so, the effect does not quickly fade like stinging nettle. It actually intensifies over the course of about 30 minutes. Oh. It just keeps on getting worse and building and building and bu- <laughs> building. Because your body is under attack, even your lymph nodes can start to swell and become painful because they're swollen. Uh, and even if this thing is on like a distant part of your body, this can happen. Uh, if you're curious about this, I actually watched a video by oh. Coyote Peterson. And some listeners may be familiar with him. Oh, I love Coyote uh, He's been Peterson. going around the world purposely letting himself get stung. Yeah, letting himself get stung by like as much or as many things as possible so he can document what these experiences Oof. are like. So we don't have to. Uh, his YouTube channel, by the way, is called Brave Wilderness. So you can watch him touch a leaf to his bare arm and then discuss how it feels. And I got to say, uh, from watching it, it seems real bad. Uh, he actually described the pain from being, uh, you know, brushing up against a, this plant as being worse than being stung by a bullet ant. Oh, oh. No. And many people believe that the bullet ant is the worst sting in the world. It can leave you sweating profusely, unable to talk. Uh, through the pain and just rolling around on the ground. He said, this is even worse. At one point, the pain, uh, I know when he did it was so intense, he felt said he felt like he was going to throw up just from the pain. Oh my god! And this is just sort of a little like brush on his arm, just like that. 
So uh, interestingly, he said the only experience that was worse uh, was when that when he stuck his hand into a box full of yellow jackets and let them sting his hand like repeatedly. So one yellow jacket sting isn't as bad, but mm. having dozens of them this like, person sting is you insane. repeatedly uh, is worse. Well, you know, these are the questions people want to know, Victoria, uh, but I don't disagree. So it is at this point, I should point out that one of the common names of this plant is the suicide plant. Ah. Uh, and the reason why is, you know, Coyote only brushed one leaf on a little bit of his forearm. Mm-hmm. But imagine if you were to fall into Ooh. a plant and get these trichomes Ugh. on your face, your neck, your arms, your chest. You know, maybe you're working in shorts and that's all you have on and you, you yep. stumble into this oh. plant and it's, you just get hit everywhere. You would basically have searing, screaming pain all over your entire body. And it's oh. called the suicide plant. As reportedly, some people have been so badly stung, they literally have suicidal thoughts because they simply cannot escape that the intense pain, pain of yeah. running into this plant. Um, now, oh. one little detail I didn't mention uh, is that unlike the stinging nettle that I'm used to, that isn't very bad to start with and fades away just completely fairly quickly, the pain of the gimpy gimpy plant, I said it would intensify for that first half hour, yeah. but the pain can last for days <gasps> no weeks no months oh no and even no years no yes it, uh no, that's not necessarily continue not not at that high level but a, a level of um pain can continue i found a quote online from a conservation officer with queensland parks and wildlife service who got hit in the face <gasps> and the chest with the plant. So kind of probably a similar situation to what I was talking about. Probably, you know, working uh-huh. like with a shirt off or something in the forest and got hit. He, here's the quote. For two or three days, the pain was almost unbearable. I couldn't work or sleep. I remember feeling oh. like there were giant hands trying to squash my chest. Then it was pretty bad pain for another fortnight or so. The stinging persisted for two years. <gasps> And reoccurred every time I had a cold shower. There is nothing to rival it. It's 10 times worse than anything else. Oh, that was his quote. My jaw uh, is so on the part floor. Of the, Just part of the oh. reason, yeah, part of the reason the pain persists is that the trichomes uh, that break off can actually remain in your skin oh. and are very difficult to get out as they kind of will burrow in. And so because Ugh. they're in there for a very long time, that is what is causing the continued irritation and pain. Also horrifying, the trichomes can very easily become detached and airborne no. and breathe <gasps> in by people oh. who just happen to be near the plant. No. That's awful. Um, tri- trichomes on dead leaves can still sting you. And oh. people have even been stung by decades old leaves in herbarium collections. Oh, and museums. wow. Everything about this is just awful. If you I haven't noticed. <laughs> I will say the toxin, uh, interesting, was uh, only recently found and understood for a long time. We're like, what, it, what actually causes the pain? Like, is it just a physical thing? Is there some sort of toxin? Or we knew there was probably some sort of liquid in there, but didn't know, like, okay, what in there is doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, it now has been isolated. It has a name. They're called gimpetides. <laughs> which I think is a great, pretty funny name. Um, but it's actually, um, we've discovered that this particular compound is actually very closely related to the painful venom of cone snails, oh. which we've also talked about oh, on wow. the show. Okay. 
makes sense. Still awful. explains why it's so painful. So th- that's that's it, you guys. Uh, the gimpy gimpy. Is there? Please know your plants. <laughs> Please. I guess if you if you're out in the rainforest in Australia, don't touch it. If you see some big heart shaped leaves, whatever you do, just stay away. Please, Certainly don't away. use them as toilet paper. Oh. Uh, that's always been like a you know a urban legend. Some people have accidentally used them as toilet paper, but from what I've understood, if you were to just even grab the leaf, there's no way it's getting anywhere near another part of your body because no. the pain comes on oh, very quickly. Yeah. Well, uh, is there you absolutely like any, don't want to mess with this plant, though. Is there like no like treatment or anything for this? So you you want to try to get the trichomes out. There's been a number of things like traditionally people would put um, different kinds of either some like even just mud, but also wa- um, different waxes mm-hmm. from plants and resins, and then like try to peel those off to pull it out. I did see actually uh, when Coyote Peterson was trying to do like it, the world he went worst. to the store and bought. Like well, he bought wax, wax strips. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, he bought bought a skin wax kit for you know for uh, for waxing your you know, your legs and stuff, and he put that out, spread on his arm, and then was like would rip it off, which of course hurt mm-hmm. terribly. Uh, but it was just he knew he had to get those trichomes out. So there there's there are some things like that you can try, but once they from what I understood from what I was reading is if they break off and they're sitting proud like above the skin, you can get them that way. But if they break off and then sort of your skin sort of pulls them in and they become under the skin, you can't get them out. They're, they're in your skin uh. and they're microscopic. Oh. So it's just it's, it's horrible. I will say from aside from the stuff I mentioned uh, when I was talking about it, uh, additional sources this week was Australian Geographic and Wikipedia. But uh, stay away from the gimpy gimpy, folks. Yeah, it makes I me not that. ever want to go to Queensland. Well, just, you know... It, don't roll around in plants. You don't know what they are. That's good advice. Yeah, pretty much it is. everywhere. Good yeah. advice. Awesome. Well, Great. hey, we'll <laughs> see everybody next week. Thanks. Thanks Kurt. for being here. And uh, thank you. Stop by next week for our amazing. Uh, let's see what we're going to call it this year. Sort of our, our beginning of the new year spectacular uh, with Brett Sieberer, who's going to ask us all kinds of strange questions. I'm I'm so Can't excited wait. to see what happens. Yeah, it's going to be great. Probably going to have us play Eat Ride Jack. Oh, 100%. We'll yes. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.